Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the barium because I tried barium in my swallowing placement and it tasted like vanilla. The hospitals I've been at, they have the green apple flavor, which I am not a fan of like, I'm not a picky eater, but when it comes to fake flavoring, I mean, it's not great, but it's also not bad. Like it's really not an awful flavor, but for a child who is not used to a variety of flavors, to them that's just going to be really overwhelming. And we're already in a situation where we're in a radiology suite. We have, you know, the radiologist, we have the SLP, we have the rad tech, we have mom, we have dad. I usually go to all of them because I'm type A and like to be there. And I think it supports continuity of care. So it's not their natural environment. It's not their natural seating position. It's not naturally what they eat. So it is it's not designed to be stressful and it really isn't stressful for us as adults, but for a child, I can see how it can be a really overwhelming environment. So again, just when considering if I'm going to refer for a modified, I just try to think, what am I going to get out of this? What clinical question am I trying to answer? Another point is I'm not trying to see if they're aspirating or not. It's not a pass fail like we talked about last time. After observing the child, I am trying to figure out, are they getting tongue-based retraction to the posterior pharyngeal wall? Is their velum able to elevate all the way to reduce nasopharyngeal backflow? Are they getting hyolaryngeal excursion? So I'm not asking, are they aspirating? You know, we always want to come in with a hypothesis. And I think that the hospital SLPs appreciate that whenever I come in and say like, hey, this is what I'm observing. These are the questions I have so that they know exactly what to look for on the modified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I was also thinking my placement was with adults and we talked about it. Like I unfortunately didn't get a placement in pediatric feeding or selling. So I'm learning so much from you. But one thing that I just thought of too, is like, there's so many little things to think about because at least on my placement with the barium, it was all white. It all looked white. And it's like, even the adults trying the food, they were a lot of the time grossed out. They were like, ooh, I don't want white applesauce or I don't want white juice or white egg salad with a little kid coming in. And like you said, new room. It's just a lot to consider. On your point with things being white, Luckily, the kids I'm working with, they're still drinking milk or formula or breast milk or whatever. So they're used to things that are white. And also sometimes they have a powder that they'll mix in the purees or whatever. So it still looks like the actual puree. But, you know, sometimes the second it touches their mouth, they're like, what? That's not my applesauce. That tastes differently. So again, we try to do our best to make it as natural as possible. There was one situation where a mom was expecting, so she couldn't be in the radiology suite. So I went in and they had me feed the child since he was more comfortable with me. And I always encourage the families to like bring their own cups and straws and spoons so that they at least have some of their comfort. But again, it's not perfect but it's, it's what we have. And usually, you know, the SLPs who are working at a children's hospital are experts at this and they usually get a really good image and it's usually a very smooth process. Mm -hmm. But I also am considering that when I'm referring for a modified, I make sure that we are going to get a good image. That's a nice little tip to bring their own bowls and spoons and stuff like that. I wouldn't have thought of that. Okay, so the last question is, how do you begin treatment? And what are things you 
try first? This is a very <laughs> big question. <laughs> yes. So just, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very broad. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like, especially in the birth to three population, a lot of our role is um, just mealtime management, getting the appropriate referrals in place, because by the time they turn three, I can't see them anymore. So I want to make sure I set them up for success. And then if we have time to do actual treatment, um, then we do that, which usually we're able to do. Um, typically, I only spend about two or three sessions on um, mealtime management, but I think it's a really good place for, you know, if you're wanting to get your feet wet in pediatric feeding and swallowing, knowing these principles can really change a lot of kids' attitude around mealtime. And so I think they're a great place to start. So one, I like to set appropriate expectations with the family. What this looks like is if we have a tube, you know, when kids have a tube, one of the first things parents tell me is like, oh, we just want to get off the tube. And of course, I want to support them through that journey. But we have to, again, think of the whole picture. So what type of tube do we have? Is it a G tube where it's inserted in the stomach? Is it an NG tube where it's inserted through the nose, which is usually more of a short-term placement? Is it a J tube, which is inserted in the jejunum, which is a part of your intestine? If it's a J tube, it's probably going to be more of a long-term situation because if it is already in place in the intestine, that means that there might be something going on with their stomach that can't handle food. So this might look like really delayed gastric emptying where they can't get the food out of their stomach and to their intestine. So it starts to go back up where they uh, begin to vomit any foods that are in their stomach. So if you have a kid with a J-tube working really closely with dietitian to um, support introducing in a very systematic and slow way foods into their stomach. Um, so again, I talk about this with the families like, okay, with the type of food we have, we need to work with the dietitian because these are all the steps before we can get to removing the tube. And for some kids, whenever I mentor people, I feel like they always get so bummed out by this fact. But for some kids, full tube removal might not be possible. And that's okay. So just really having those conversations up front and really talking to the medical team about what's appropriate and what our real goal is, is going to be helpful for everyone involved to prevent you getting discouraged as a clinician and the family getting discouraged. So yeah, and also with tube feeding, considering are they on a continuous feed versus a bolus or gravity feed, a continuous feed, that would be, you know, if it's taking 12 hours, for them to get their feed and then they have a break and it's like another eight hours or whatever it may look like versus a bolus feed, which might be 25 minutes, 25, 30 minutes for them to get their whole feed. If it's a bolus feed, they're going to be more primed for mealtime because about 20 minutes is how long we take to take a full meal into our stomach. So their stomach is used to having a meal's worth of stuff in it versus a continuous feed where it's just maybe a couple of teaspoons at a time. And again, it's continuous. One of the first things I would do from a treatment slash mealtime management point for our kids on a continuous feed is I call the dietitian. Hi, dietitian. My name is Allison. We share a kid, Joe. Let's talk about their tube. How can we support getting him on a maybe a bolus feed schedule 
or can we try maybe one bolus feed during the day or what can that look like to start priming him for mealtime? And usually they're always very receptive. Unless the child has some kind of medical diagnosis that prevents that change, the dietitian is just going to be your very best friend. And then I always work with them, okay, so if we're changing the tube, what's the best time for me to come and do therapy? Do you want it to be during that bolus feed? Do you want it to be before? Do you want it to be after? Um, typically, I try to do it during the bolus feed so that they are associating oh, I'm eating food and my stomach is getting full. But for some kids, that's too much. So just figuring out what works best for the family, the child, and get the dietitian's perspective. Another thing I like to do outside of tube feeding is working on positioning. And so that this is where I call on my OTs and PTs. Um, and I'm super blessed in my job right now to have an excellent OT and PT who who are always so um, interested in feeding and wanting to be a part of the feeding team, which is just incredible to have. If you are looking into pediatric feeding and swallowing, I would highly recommend finding a PT or OT at your facility who also is interested in kind of making a team together because feeding is so interdisciplinary. We all have to, you know, relying on the physician and the dietitian, PT, OT. So in terms of positioning, you know, for a baby who has reflux, I might explore more of an upright position so that, you know, gravity can keep the food down. For a baby who might have difficulty managing a higher flow rate, if I'm already on the slowest nipple, like an ultra preemie or preemie nipple, I might explore an elevated sideline position. Um, and this is where they would be at about a 45 degree angle. Their ears, shoulders, and hips would be laying down and all in alignment. That's an option for infants. <laughs> for your toddlers, we want to explore more of a 90-90-90 position. So this looks like 90 degrees at the hips. 90 degrees at the knees, and then 90 degrees at the ankle. Um, and there are some great diagrams just on Google, you know, kind of explaining that. But again, remember, every kid is going to be different. There are some children who might have some motor differences that might require them to be in a more reclined position. For a child who doesn't have great head control, they might be better off in a more reclined position. And that would be for an older child. For an infant, we really don't want to be presenting purees or solids until they have good head control, but we know that there are some um, diagnoses where head control is just going to be difficult for them, but they can sometimes still eat. So just something to consider there. Sometimes what we'll do for positioning, um, you know, I work in the home, so I can't really bring in a high chair because it's just me and just my tiny car. So we really try to work with what the parents have. So one trick that I've learned from our PTs and OTs is using rolled up towels if their high chair is a little bit too big. So we'll roll up towels and put them on the sides of them to give them some more core stability. If they're not able to have their feet reach the footrest, one thing that we've done before is we took a pool noodle and we cut it in half and glued it onto the footrest so that they, that they were able to reach it. Um, some dads and moms get really creative and get like two by fours and, you know, drill them onto the high chair. Um, we really want their feet to be supported, which is where that last 90 degree comes in, 90 degree at the ankle. 
um, just to give their core some more support. Um, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know, whenever I go to a place where it has really high stools and my feet are dangling, if you look around a restaurant, you'll see adults hooking their feet behind the metal bars of a bar stool because we crave that input and that support to stabilize ourselves. It's a lot more difficult to swallow when our feet are kind of floating in space. So always taking that into account whenever you're watching a child eat, what are their feet doing? Are they dangling? Are they planted? Are they trying to find support some way? So just something something to consider. It's so funny that you brought up restaurants because my mom actually always chooses the ones where she can have her feet on the ground. She's like, I can't eat if my feet aren't on the ground. And then it also makes me think of those really popular kids' chairs. OTs love them. Is there a name for those chairs? Or I should put them in my story when this comes out so people can look at them. It grows with the child and their ankles can always be touching. Oh, okay. So you can screw it to different levels. My niece sees an OT and an SLP and the OT was like, you need this chair when she's eating so she can have her ankles, but it grows with her. So Okay, that is so fancy. I love that. Get the name of it. I would love to see it. Yeah, I'll get the name of it and then I'll put it in the link of the description. Is it this, is it like a wooden structure where you can change the levels of the? I think so. Okay, I think I do know what you're talking about, but I, I don't know the name of it either. But yeah, it's pretty cool. And it makes sense when you were saying the 90, 90, 90 thing. I was like, oh, that's a perfect chair for that. Yeah, exactly. And I love things that are adjustable because like you said, it does grow with them rather than a family feeling like they have to buy a new seating arrangement anytime a kid has a growth spurt. It's really interesting too, to think how some of these high chairs just have one setting for the footrest because how long is the child going to just be able to meet that part perfectly? It's not going to last very long. Mike also like the little hacks, putting the towels there or like figuring out what you could insert because what are the chances that you just didn't out, you outgrew the footrest? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, if the seat is too deep, what we'll do is like put a small pillow behind the child to move them forward a little bit so that their knees can be at the edge of the chair rather than their feet straight out. And that's why we're not huge fans of the bumbo chair, which are tend to be pretty popular just because their, their legs are more in a, shot out position rather than that bend in the knee and bend in the ankles. So yeah, just something to consider whenever starting with feeding and swallowing, what kind of seating are they in? Because honestly, sometimes I've come in and we've just changed the seating and they have no difficulty eating afterwards. They just needed that support whenever they're in a situation where they're so focused on stabilizing their head, stabilizing their core. It's really hard to focus on chewing. So sometimes by just making really small adjustments can make such a big difference. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and on chairs. <laughs> I know. I love it though. All right. So the next tip I would give is making sure they are hungry at mealtimes. So what I see a lot of is, you know, parents will tell me they don't eat what I made for dinner. Like they won't eat green beans. They won't eat this, this, and that. And so I'll say, okay, well, talk to me about what they ate before dinner. Like, oh, well, they ate some Cheerios at 8 a.m. Then they had a banana at 9. Then they had apple slices at 10. Then they had honey grams at 11. And then at 12, they skipped lunch. And then at 1 o'clock, they had eight ounces of milk. And then two o'clock, they took a nap. Then when they woke up from that, they had eight ounces of milk. And then we had a snack. And then I gave dinner at six. And I'm like, okay, 
Well, what I'm wondering is that maybe they weren't super hungry by the time we got to dinner because we're kind of in that grazing pattern. And the difficulty with grazing is we get full just enough to hit satiation and we're good and we're not going to eat. And then whenever we dip a little bit in our hunger, we start to get hungry. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm hungry, but not super hungry. I'm just gonna get a little snack. And it's just kind of in this waiting pool situation of hovering between hungry, not hungry. And so that's why we really wanna encourage families to get on somewhat of a routine or schedule of spacing meals two and a half to three hours apart. So maybe we wanna eat within 30 minutes of waking up. We wake up at seven, breakfast at 7.30, and we want every meal to have a protein, a fat, and a carb. So sometimes that helps parents kind of help their child break that snacking pattern. So 7.30, we might have an avocado with a piece of toast and some like crushed up bacon, I don't know. And then two and a half hours later, it would be maybe snack time. So maybe they could do apples with almond butter because almond butter can kind of count as a protein and a fat. And then two and a half, three hours later could be lunch time. And that gives kids enough time to burn off that little snack that we had that was enough to tie them over to lunch. But by the time they get to lunch, they're hungry again. It's time to eat. And another thing that we want is only water in between mealtimes because what I sometimes see is that parents do a really good job getting on a, a, a good eating schedule of two and a half every three hours. But in between meals, they're drinking milk, which is pretty high calorie and has a pretty high fat content. And so that tends to keep kids full for longer. So really only having water in between is helpful to increase the hunger cues at an appropriate time. Reducing snacks. So we want kids to have about three meals a day and three snacks a day. So just decreasing the amount of times we're eating during the day. But we want it to be frequent enough to where we can get calories in throughout the day. Because on the flip side, if we only have three meals a day and a child doesn't eat at one of them for whatever reason, that only gives us two other opportunities to cram in all these calories. So we want that about two and a half to three hours. And really there doesn't have to be a difference between a snack and breakfast, lunch, dinner. Food is just food. So I feel like sometimes we get stuck on like, I don't know what to feed them for breakfast. It's like, well, what'd you have for dinner last night? Just heat that back up. I feel like that's such a society thing where we've determined, okay, for breakfast, you can only eat these things. For lunch, you can have a sandwich or a salad. And then dinner, you have to eat spaghetti or meatloaf. It's just so strange how we've develop this concept of what we think food and mealtime has to be. With children, they don't have to have some elaborate meal that's very different than what you ate. Yes. And I think I hear at least SLPs often say like, just feed them what you're eating. Of course, you mentioned a protein, a fat, and a carb. So if you're not eating like a well-balanced meal, consider that for your child. But I feel like that can take out so much of the kind of like the feeling of the complexities surrounding mealtime. If it's just as simple as like, they can eat what you're eating, obviously, depending on their age and everything, but. 
A hundred percent. No, I completely agree. And that brings me into my next kind of thing that I suggest is whatever is on your plate should be on their plate and whatever's on their plate should be on your plate. So if I have a child who only likes dinosaur chicken nuggets and French fries, but the family is eating spaghetti and meatballs, then on everyone at the table's plate, I want everyone to have a dinosaur chicken nugget and a French fry. And then if the child is accepting of spaghetti and meatballs on their plate, then I encourage that. If for some reason, for if it's a sensory reason or whatever, if they don't want it on their plate, then I have it on a separate plate for them. So it doesn't have to be, you know, on their tray on the high chair. It can just be somewhere in front of them. Oh, okay, this is Joe's spaghetti and meatballs. And then we leave it. And we don't try to get Joe to eat the spaghetti and meatballs. We just present him with the opportunity that it's there. And we want mealtime to be focused on the social aspect of, of life. Food is so social. I remember a while back, I did a Whole30. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Shannon, but it was absolutely terrible. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. And I noticed it wasn't even about like the food, but I just noticed my social life being so impacted because so many of the things we do as a group revolve around food. I know like for my family, every family gathering is going to have some sort of meal that we enjoy together or holidays are usually surrounded by a meal or, you know, hanging out with friends. You usually go to a bar or a restaurant or whatever. So what I like to encourage families to do is focus on being a family at mealtime and they're going to get their calories with their dinosaur chicken nuggets and their french fries. We can work on expanding, exploring foods more during therapy, but I want mealtime to, I don't want it to be stressful. I don't want it to be a power struggle. I don't want it to end with mom crying, dad crying, kids screaming. Like that is not helpful when our arousal levels increase, our appetite decreases. So we want mealtimes just to be pleasurable. So those are some mealtime strategies that you can start with before even getting into addressing, you know, how to eat the foods. Mm -hmm. I really like how you said what's on your plate should be on their plate. And that's where I would have ended it. Like what's <laughs> on your plate. But I like how you said, and what's on their plate should be on your plate. And even if it's just one French fry and one chicken nugget, I love that. And it's, and of course, I like the idea of like, if they really don't want it on their plate, then just having another plate right beside their plate. Yeah, exactly. It, it's nice. Cause it's like, so often, like we just think about matching their food to our food, but it's mm -hmm. kind of like also showing them that we'll take into consideration what your preferences are as well. I like that. Yeah. Exactly. So to reflect back to your original question of what specific treatment protocols or exercises I use, it really depends on the patient. I am certified in Beckman Oral Motor, Talk Tools Level 1, McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program, or MDTP, which is designed for adults, but I have been able to apply the principles to pediatrics. I also have training in the SOS approach to feeding and orofacial myology, and I don't follow these protocols and treatments perfectly, but they are all just tools in my toolbox. Um, altogether, I have about 200 CEUs specific to pediatric feeding and swallowing. So to condense that into a one-hour podcast is really difficult and wouldn't be beneficial to providers because there would be so many missing pieces. 
Also, just to add, you definitely don't need all of these trainings and certifications to become a competent feeding therapist. Um, I had limited mentorship in my first couple of years, so I wanted all the knowledge I could get my hands on. But what is a beneficial starting point is to understand physiology and the underlying system involved. So to recap, doing a thorough assessment and making appropriate referrals is always the first place to start. Um, in the interest of time, today we discussed making referrals to neuro, GI, ENT, and pulmonology. But other professionals we need to make referrals to are OT, PT, allergist, endocrinologist, dentist, psychologist, cardiologist, and I'm sure there are more, but those are the ones that come to mind at the moment. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> I just feel like everyone listening is so lucky to be able to have someone that knows so much and you're so passionate about this topic and it's just really nice to have you share all of the knowledge that you have gained over the years. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and where can people find you? ei.teletherapy on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And um, and you did some podcasts. Very exciting. You're going to be on the first Bite podcast, <laughs> which is yeah. airing probably, it'll probably be airing um, around the time of this one, but oh, really? if it's uh, released or whatever published, then I can put it in the description of the bio so people can hear you on the first Bite podcast because that's really cool. And you were also on the Thanks Morris podcast so people can check you out there. And then also episode number 13 of the SLP Corner podcast. <laughs> You're just on all the podcasts. All the podcast. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, so go follow Allison at ei.teletherapy, and we will probably be having another podcast together coming out soon. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks for having me, Shannon. All right, I'll see everyone next Sunday. Yeah.